You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 95. Kuda. Last time, we looked at the Emperor Nicephorus's relations with the Caliphate, Charlemagne, and the clergy. Today we get into the policies closest to his heart, the economy and the Balkans. These two areas are closely intertwined, and together present us with both the positive and the negative legacies of Nicephorus's time in power. As you know, reoccupying the Balkans had been on the imperial to-do list for a long time now. If the peninsula could be filled with loyal, tax-paying citizens, then the empire might just be able to get back on its feet. That extra money and manpower could be used for important projects, like, say, pushing back the Arabs. Irene had taken some steps in this direction, her campaigning had helped establish the theme of Hellas and the theme of Macedonia to better protect the Romans of Greece and Thrace. And her rebuilding had helped create a militarized border just south of the Hemus Mountains. Soldiers manned the battlements from Anchialis in the east to Philippopolis in the west, keeping an eye out for the Bulgars. The safe pockets of imperial territory could not easily be expanded, though. The wilds of Macedonia and western Thrace had little in the way of natural defensible barriers. Settlers living there would be utterly exposed to Slav or Bulgar attack, and the empire's military could not permanently garrison the area as they were needed in Anatolia. It's possible that Irene asked Nicephorus to begin work on plans to improve the situation. Or, as General Logothete, he may have taken this upon himself. Whenever the ideas came to him, once in office, the Emperor set to work on an ambitious plan to turn the Balkans into a truly Roman land once more. As we established last week, the Emperor was not one for patience, nor did he seem worried about overstretching his precious resources. So while the Anatolian armies were raiding the Caliphate in 805, he ordered the theme of Hellas to march into the Peloponnese. 
The eunuch Stavrakios had already cowed the local Slavs twenty years earlier, but the pagan tribes only bowed to the Byzantines when they were in front of them. This time, the troops were to prepare the ground for new settlers. The Peloponnese was the obvious place to start. The former home of the great Spartans was practically an island. The Byzantines already held the one land entrance, the Isthmus of Corinth. If they could actually settle the lands with new citizens, then they could begin their advance north, knowing that everything to the south was secure. By and large, this project was a real success. Settlers were shipped in, including families from Calabria and Sicily, who claimed to be descendants of the people who fled the area back in the 580s and 600s, when the Slavs and Avars first came raiding. A good number of the new arrivals moved to the city of Patras in the north. The following year, 806, the local Slavs rebelled, but were put down by the soldiers of Hellas. Over time, they would Romanize and Christianize, and leave behind a Greek-speaking Byzantine population who made it their home. Buoyed by this success, Nicephorus pushed ahead with more ambitious plans. In 807, he marched north himself to investigate possible areas for expansion. However, when his army reached Adrianople, he discovered a plot against him amongst his troops. We're only four years removed from the rebellion of Vardan Turkus, so there may have been lingering discontent, or it could have been a reaction to events from the previous year. As you know, the emperor kept provoking the Arabs, and the men of the Themes and their families were the ones who paid for it. Whatever the true cause of the treason, I suspect the emperor was not leaving time for wounds to heal. Nicephorus returned home to restore discipline. However, he ordered the Anatolian troops he'd brought with him to link up with the theme of Macedonia. This force pushed out into the Slav-dominated lands north of Thessalonica. I've reposted a map from Warren Treadgold's history, which shows the area clearly. If you take a peek, you can see that this new army group were operating around the Strymon River. Their objective was presumably to clear the area of any Slav tribe that looked like they might cause trouble. Eventually, they pushed north to the edge of the Hemus range and re-garrisoned the city of Serdika. Serdika was about 80 miles west of Philippopolis, the most western of the Roman outposts. It had long been outside the imperial orbit, but its population may still have had contacts with Constantinople. For those who don't know, Serdika is the future Sofia, or Sofia, the capital of modern Bulgaria. I've put up a picture on the website and social media of the modern city to show you its proximity to the huge mountains, and thus, in our period, to the Bulgar heartlands. Nicephorus's goal was to provide a defensive screen for the colonists he wanted to move into the lands further south around the Strymon. Once the area was secure, the emperor ordered his officials to scour Anatolia for transients that he could ship to the Balkans. By transients, I mean people not registered for the land tax, because, 
they didn't own any. Many poor laborers were scooped up, along with criminals, runaway slaves, and aliens. Hardly the loyal farmers that Nicephorus was looking for, but you have to start somewhere. While his officials were out in the provinces, he also decided that they should conduct a thorough census and update the land tax registers. This is what you'd expect once your treasurer becomes emperor, and this was the first full survey that we know of since the time of Leo III. Of course, having been the general logothete, Nicephorus knew what state the rolls were in, and determined not only to refresh them, but to thoroughly collect what the state was owed. As the inspectors arrived at your family farm, they would begin counting fields, livestock and slaves, noting them down and working out how much you owed. However, they also looked into the last 20 years of your tax history. The government always offered exemptions and perks to court political allies. And Irene had been particularly generous because she'd needed the elite's support for her unusual rule. All of these exceptions were to be done away with, and inheritance tax was to be particularly assiduously investigated. Not only was it backdated through Irene's remissions, but the inspectors demanded payment from anyone whose circumstances had improved dramatically, regardless of whether they could prove that they'd inherited land. Now, any tax inspection was going to be unpopular, but this last point might seem particularly unfair. Realistically, though, without a fully capitalist economy or any accurate record-keeping, the most likely way for someone to increase their fortune was through inheritance. Out in Anatolia, a lot of transactions were not fully documented, and Nicephorus was determined for the government to get its fair share. This extended to anyone who'd found buried treasure on their property. That might sound silly, but with no banks available, many people buried jewellery and coins. It was a common practice of the ancient world, but with the dawn of Arab raids, it had probably become a daily necessity. These finds were to be reported and taxed. Nicephorus's enemies accused him of greed on a mammoth scale, just as they had John the Cappadocian and Justinian before him. But in a world which was utterly inefficient and corrupt by our standards, the emperor could argue with a straight face that he was bringing justice to his people. It was the rich, after all, who were granted exemptions, and the reassessment of land probably alleviated unfair burdens on struggling families. From our point of view, accurate record-keeping suggests good government. But having just faced a revolt from his army, the emperor was busy alienating another section of society. This is about the same time he was annoying the clergy over his choice of patriarch. His unpopularity was reaching every home in the provinces. He wasn't done there either. Next, he targeted church foundations. These could include orphanages, hospices, poorhouses, as well as churches and monasteries. These institutions usually had tenants working surrounding lands whose rents helped fund the charity work. 
Irene had just stopped collecting their tax, which Nicephorus, of course, revived, but he went further and demanded back taxes. Understandably, many of these foundations had no cash reserve to pay with, and so the emperor began confiscating their property in lieu. To right-thinking Christians of the upper classes, this was a scandalous affront. But again, the emperor wanted to stop the wealthy from protecting their land from his inspectors. As I mentioned during the end of the century, some of these monasteries had become avenues for rich men to build a family shrine and prevent their estate from being broken up. Of course, between these measures and the controversy over Joseph of Cathara, the iconophile elites were deeply hostile. In February 808, the conspiracy I mentioned last week took place. Amongst those exiled for their part in it was George Sinkelis. He and Theophanes were soon sitting together in the latter's family monastery, blackening the emperor's name. In a way, they give Nicephorus rougher treatment than either Constantine V or Justinian II. You couldn't really take away the tenacity of the latter or the military triumphs of the former, but everything Nicephorus did is dismissed as the work of a greedy, treacherous, and blasphemous man. From the point of view of the state, though, Nicephorus was an excellent chief financial officer. The treasury was full, and just before Easter in 809, 1,100 pounds of gold was shipped to the army on the Strymon. That amount suggests that about 10,000 troops were gathered in the area, working on clearing Macedonia for resettlement. A large contingent came together, ready for payday, when suddenly, from the west, a Bulgar force appeared and smashed through the camp. Achieving complete surprise, the step riders slaughtered the senior officers as the rest of the troops fled. The chests full of campaign pay were seized. The prize items from the assembled baggage was looted. By the time the army regrouped and returned, the Bulgars had disappeared back into the rocky roads of northern Macedonia. At around the same time further north, the Bulgar Khan, Krum, led his main army up to the gates of Serdika and put it under siege. The garrison inside and the terrified population were not ready for this at all. Either there was a security failure or someone took a bribe. Whichever the case, the Bulgars stormed in and sacked the city. Many fled the scene while others were butchered in the streets. Krum had the city's defences crippled and vanished into the mountains. In one week, the Khan had destroyed two years of the emperor's work. Fuming at this news, Nicephorus ordered the Tachmata to ready their horses for the march north. On the 3rd of April, the army left the city and just four days later they had crossed the mountains and made straight for the Bulgar capital. I'll discuss the physical layout of Pliska next week, but there were no tough physical barriers in the emperor's path, and Krum's palace was made of wood. The Bulgar armies were still in the west, and so the Byzantines met almost no resistance as they sacked their enemy's hometown, and then made a leisurely withdrawal. 
the news that Nicephorus had celebrated Easter in the Khan's home was enough of a threat that Crum did not attempt to attack the Byzantines again. However, on the march back, the emperor's demanding nature started to catch up with him. Instead of going back to Constantinople, he led the host towards Serdica. He wasn't going to reassess the situation, he was going to put things back as they should be. This new route meant the imperial entourage soon encountered survivors from the sack of the frontier town. The soldiers and officials who'd made it out alive begged the emperor to issue a general pardon, promising not to punish them for the fall of the city. Nicephorus refused, making it pretty clear that he was going to punish them for not doing a better job of defending their outpost. As a result, news trickled back along the road to the survivors who were traipsing toward the emperor, and they suspected that exile, or worse, was awaiting them. So instead of heading home, they defected. Knowing that the Bulgars would welcome and pay those who switched sides, they did. Apparently one of these men was an expert engineer called Eumathios, who would fill in vital skill shortages when the Bulgars come to assault the cities of Thrace in the next decade. The emperor pushed on to Serdica. He fully intended to order his army to rebuild the walls and regarrison the city. But as eager as he was to restore the frontier, he could see the problem with his plan. The majority of the army he was leading were drawn from the Tachmata. They were elite troops, but they slept in a warm bed at night. They were not used to frontier life, and asking them to do hard manual labour was going to be an awkward conversation. Once the work was complete, though, he had the further conundrum of finding soldiers willing to stay here and guard this highly vulnerable settlement, one still covered in the drying blood of its previous occupants. As the caravan wound its way toward its destination, the emperor asked his officers to stir up the men's patriotic spirit. Tell them how terrible it is that a Roman military outpost was taken by treachery and sacked. We must rebuild it ourselves. Our pride demands it. Unfortunately, the men saw through this ruse immediately and felt very much that their pride was not at stake. They were soldiers, not stonemasons, and they had no desire to be put to work. The timing of the emperor's request was all wrong. Not only were the spoils from Pliska sitting unsold on their wagons, but the troops hadn't been paid yet. Easter was payday, and chests full of gold coins were awaiting them back on the Bosphorus. Once they'd had a chance to talk, the soldiers refused to go any further. They tore down their officers' tents and hurled insults at the emperor. Nicephorus came to speak to them and assured them that they would head home together and enjoy their spoils rather than stay in the shadow of the mountains. Most of the men calmed down, but a contingent continued protesting throughout the night and actually left their camp to form a sort of picket line on a neighbouring hill. Nicephorus spent the next day talking them down too, but as the army finally slouched home, he made sure that the ringleaders were identified and punished. Back in the palace, Nicephorus weighed up the situation 
and decided not to take any drastic action. Better to let things calm down for a year or two before... I'm joking, of course. Upon arriving home, the emperor gave one of the more dramatic orders in the history of Roman government. He may have been planning this for a while, but the success of the Bulgar attacks only underlined the need for its promulgation now. He asked his officials to identify families from across Anatolia, loyal, land-owning citizens, and order them to migrate immediately to the Balkans. Once a household was selected, everyone within three generations was expected to pack their bags and hit the road. Nicephorus could see that without a proper Roman population, the Balkans would never again be a part of the empire. Volunteer colonists just weren't plentiful enough to overwhelm the local Slavs and change the culture of the region. The Bulgar attack on the army at the Strymon had come from the west, not from the north where the Bulgars lived. The Khan was getting information on Byzantine movements direct from the Slav population of Macedonia. This was unacceptable. The emperor's plan would see Greece and Thrace teeming with Anatolian families who would Romanize and Christianize their neighbours by example and weight of numbers. There had been mass migrations before, like Justinian II shipping Slavs to Anatolia, or Constantine V deporting Syrians to Thrace. But of course, those were non-Romans being moved. The empire didn't have to deal with the fallout from their removal. The people the emperor was targeting were loyal subjects, families who paid the government in exchange for the protection of their homes. It was a bold policy, decisive and clever, but of course it was deeply unpopular. Though we only have Theophanes' rhetoric to go on, it's not hard to believe that there was weeping and suicide and pleas for the Arabs to invade so that the whole project would be called off. Even people whose circumstances were about to improve were desperate not to leave their ancestors' burial sites. For farming families who for generations had been natives of one place, it must have been a terrible shock. Imperial assistance was offered to help them sell their property and transport them to Europe. Once they were there, they would receive financial aid too. But for many, their new plots of land had nothing on them. No equipment, no farm buildings, no houses. It was going to be hard work just getting these new homes up and running not to mention the threat of attack from the Slavs and Bulgars. Back in Anatolia, some citizens were forced to purchase the abandoned land, whether they wanted it or not. As cruel and arbitrary as this policy was, it does reflect the intelligence and commitment of Nicephorus. Rather than hoping that the migration alone would achieve his ends, the emperor prepared a system by which they could protect themselves and finance their own future defence. In selecting suitable families, Nicephorus's officials had consulted their newly refurbished tax registers. They had targeted poor young men, who once they'd moved would be enrolled in their area's theme army. This was no longer voluntary, it was a compulsory commission. But instead of being expected to pay for their own horse, gear and weapons, their local community would carry the cost. So each soldier came with a bill 
for just over 18 gold coins a year to pay for his service. His tax payments would also be covered by his neighbours. So whereas the poor theme soldiers I described at the end of the century might well try and shirk the dangerous task of fighting the Arabs, the new armies of the Balkans would hopefully be more willing to stand and fight, save in the knowledge that their status was secure. The emperor also hoped that these new armies would feel a sense of loyalty to their fledgling communities. Best of all, the new themes would be self-financing. Local tax, paid in coins, would allow the soldiers to buy equipment from private arms dealers, rather than state warehouses having to do all the work. Along with these new recruits, the government also chose groups of experienced soldiers to transfer west, so some of the matraites, the marines living in the south of Anatolia, were moved to the west coast of Greece, where their skills could transfer from the Mediterranean to the Adriatic. The new arrivals were settled across the areas already under occupation, so some went to the Peloponnese, some to the countryside around Thessalonica, some to Thessaly in northern Greece. One of the few towns we have reports from is Sparta, where families from the Armeniacon and Thracision were now arriving. So add ethnic tensions to the list of problems facing the new colonists. Despite the potential for rebellion and misery, none is directly reported. Local sources praised the emperor because the influx saw churches built across the land and the conversion of many Slavs. No famine is reported, which suggests that food was being brought in at imperial expense. As you know, our sources for this period of history are pretty spotty. But it may be that Nicephorus deserves even more credit than we can officially give him. None of our historians fully document the momentous process taking place in the Balkans. Once the signal becomes clearer again toward the end of the century a new system of administration is in place. Each province is now known as a theme and has become a self-governing unit. The Stratigos is acting as the governor and he has his own local administration and justice system. These officials manage local resources and the recruitment of their theme army. If you ever heard that the Byzantine theme armies were all local forces defending their homes arm in arm, then this is where that idea comes from. You see, we call the post-Heraclius armies theme armies because Theophanes does. But George and Theophanes are writing now, in the 9th century, looking back. In every other source, like the patriarch Nicephorus's history, they are simply referred to as commands. So the command of the Anatolikon was given to Leo. Those commands were initially just the empire's field armies. Obviously, they became tied to their locality as time went on, but they were never an explicitly local force. I've called them themes on the podcast just because every textbook does. But the word theme seems to come from the verb meaning to place, to deposit, to set down, to assign. Modern historians like John Halden believe that Nicephorus was the one who created the first real theme, armies, meaning armies organized and paid for by their local province. 
their theme. These men would still receive imperial donatives and campaign pay, but when they were not needed, they were not a burden on the exchequer. This localization of administration was designed to help the Stratigos manage his territory better. And it seems to have worked because by the time our sources become clear again, the empire is covered in actual themes. The old provinces of gone, and the Anatolikon and Thracision are the names of administrative provinces. Obviously, I'll discuss the details of these changes at the end of the century, but for now I think we can say that Nicephorus was heavily involved in this innovative system. The areas he was recolonizing had long abandoned the old provincial system, so it was no problem to install a new one. Slowly over time, the success of this system would spread across the whole of Byzantium. It left the emperors able to focus on paying their small, fully professional army, while the provinces could fund a militia capable of defending them from local raids. Two years after giving the order for the migration, Nicephorus was dead, so he can hardly claim credit for the implementation of the new theme system. Nor do we really know which parts of it had already been in place before his reign. Our knowledge of events in, say, Thessalonica, where a local militia must have existed, are extremely limited. But none of our previous emperors demonstrated the same vision and resolve that he did. And thanks to him, the most southerly parts of the Balkans remain Greek-speaking to this day. So to that extent, his plan for new settlers was a success. In the years that followed, a theme of the Peloponnesus was formed. The theme of Hellas moved north, covering Thessaly. Cephalonia was upgraded to a theme, as was Thessalonica. The theme of Macedonia guarded the stretch of land between the empire's second city and Thrace to its east. I'll give you an updated map in a few decades' time, when more developments have taken place. We should also acknowledge that none of this would have been possible without the recovery and growth of Anatolia's population. The reduction in Arab raids and the disappearance of bubonic plague are the two factors we can easily observe. That growth was helping the economy recover, and coins slowly replaced payments in kind. This was a process the emperor very much wanted to encourage. Naturally, Nicephorus wanted to do away with all systems which might be inefficient and update them to cold hard cash. While the mass migration was taking place, the Vasilefs deepened his financial reforms. The Byzantines had no income tax, only a poll tax which everyone paid, and a tax on the land that you owned. This meant that a wealthy merchant who lived in a city might be making a tidy profit and paying little to the exchequer. Of course, there were trade duties, but this expense could easily be passed on to the consumer. And that consumer might be the state if the merchants were bringing food and goods to the capital, which they often were. So Nicephorus was determined to exact some more revenue from the wealthier members of this group. Naturally, he increased regulations on certain goods to make sure they were properly accounted for. But then he forced the biggest ship owners of the capital to take a state loan 
at a fixed rate of interest of about 16%. As I mentioned at the end of the century, trade was viewed with suspicion by the ruling classes who felt that landowning was the only respectable occupation. Capitalist activity was often seen as profiteering or even theft. But many wealthy men were still involved in commercial ventures, and Constantinople was the obvious place to base yourself. Nicephorus, being a specialist in financial measures, saw a way to unlock some of this capital and get money flowing around the system and into the state coffers. These forced loans were like a tax on the city's big ship owners. A forced loan of 16% seems like gouging, but the emperor's point was that these men were already making loads of money from bringing in food for the government and the army and the city's population, um, along with other supplies. So here's some more money, go invest it, make a profit, and then pay a fair share to me. Again, this seems to have only targeted the very rich, and it's worth noting that in times of war, the merchant navy would be used for military purposes. So it's possible that Nicephorus felt the fleet was looking a little run down and wanted to make sure money was invested to keep it up and running. Finally, of course, it meant that the tax now flowing in from the new census was being pumped back into the economy, into the hands of local citizens who could then pay their tax with it. From our perspective, Nicephorus looks far-sighted and far more knowledgeable about the economy than any emperor since Anastasius way back in the 5th century. But again, I doubt any of the capital's ship owners thanked him for his actions. In September of 810, an assassin came at the emperor with a sword, wounding several people before he was wrestled to the ground. He swore, under torture, that he acted alone, but the list of people with grievances against Nicephorus was growing longer. By New Year 811, the emperor felt he'd accumulated enough cash to afford to pay for a large army to go on a long summer's campaign. He'd not forgotten about Crum and the sack of Sardica. On the contrary, the emperor was planning to wipe the Bulgar state off the map so that he could safely repopulate Thrace and Macedonia. News had arrived that the sons of Harun al-Rashid were fighting each other in the caliphate. The time was right to order the theme armies to cross to Europe and march with him. According to Theophanes, the emperor bragged about his achievements. He even criticised earlier emperors for their indecision. If true, it was an ironic statement. Next time, the emperor will march to his doom. His refusal to take time over his decisions will catch up with him in a fatal way. Sadly, he will drag the empire down with him, leaving us to wonder what might have been if this restless, possibly brilliant emperor had survived. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.